Everything that Jesus has been teaching in the first 16 verses of this chapter, John 15, is driving at what Jesus says in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Abide in me. Bear much fruit. Abide in my love. These, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And alongside the commands that Jesus has given us in the first 16 verses, there are also encouragements. Jesus says, these things I command you. So it's obvious that primarily in his mind, he has his commands or his imperatives in view. That he's given us these commands and these imperatives so that we will obey them, loving one another. Right? But Jesus has not only given commands. He has given us also what theologians call indicatives, which are those things that indicate what God has done. Imperatives are the things that we must do. Indicatives are the things that indicate what God has done. And Jesus has added indicatives alongside imperatives in his teaching here in this section. And no doubt, those indicatives are also intended to help us love one another. It's not as if Jesus was doing two things. With his commands, he was trying to get us to love one another, but with the indicatives, he was trying to do something else. That doesn't really make sense. If Jesus has been aiming at trying to get us to love one another with the commands he's given us, it stands to reason that also the indicatives that he's mixed in throughout the commands are also intended to help us love one another. So though Jesus has his commands primarily in mind in verse 17, no doubt he has the indicatives in mind, at least to some extent also. And today we're looking at two indicatives from verses 14 to 16, which ought to help motivate us to love one another, as that's the aim of this whole section of teaching, apparently. This is why Jesus is giving this whole section of teaching. Look at verse 17, so that you will love one another. So even the indicatives are there to do that to some extent. The first indicative we see is those who are vitally and organically connected to Jesus are his friends. This is in verses 14 and 15. You are my servants, or pardon me, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Remember, not all who go to church and name the name of Christ are vitally and organically connected to Jesus. This is what we've been seeing over the last number of weeks. It is possible to be merely externally connected to Jesus and be as lost as an outright pagan. But those who have experienced the new birth, those who have received the Holy Spirit, and who are therefore those who bear fruit and obey Jesus' commands, these people are Jesus' friends, we read here in this passage. Again, you don't become one of Jesus' friends by doing what He commands just as you don't become a fruit-bearing branch by attaching yourself to the vine. 
But you can recognize whether you are or not legitimately a friend and whether you are or not organically and vitally connected to the vine by whether or not you obey Jesus' commands. So obedience and fruit then are diagnostic of a right relationship with Jesus. And obedience and fruit then are diagnostic of whether or not you are a friend of Jesus. Don't miss this. Those rightly related to Jesus are not merely servants, but friends. When Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, he doesn't mean that we're not actually servants anymore. We are. And the rest of the New Testament bears that out. But Jesus is not the haughty homeowner who won't deign to befriend the gardener or the house elf. Jesus calls the gardeners aside here, so to speak, and tells them that he considers them not just servants, but friends. And it's evident that Jesus is not just blowing smoke. Jesus is not just full of hot air, flattering his servants when he really has no intention of treating them as friends. The very next day, Jesus will lay down his life for these friends. What a privilege the Christian has then to be called a friend of Jesus. There's a song with a chorus that goes like this. Some of you probably know it. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. (laughs) And some of us reform folks who love our songs and hymns and spiritual songs and lyrical depth and lyrical precision, we mock and we ridicule how repetitive how trite, and how superficial. What a kitschy, not not catchy, but kitschy melody. And we brag about how we used to be in churches that sang songs like that. But now we're in churches that sing things like all people that on earth do dwell, and in Christ alone. An improvement, no doubt, we, we reason. But look, have we lost the childlike wonder and joy of being called friends of God? Does it not move us anymore to hear Jesus say, you are my friends? Could we not enter into a song like that with exuberance and with enthusiasm, even if we don't prefer the melody, which on the record I don't? How you love me. It's amazing. It's amazing. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. What is wrong with those lyrics? Absolutely nothing. As Abraham was called a friend of God in three places... 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7, Isaiah 41 and verse 8, and James 2, verse 23. So you, Christian, are called a friend of God, a friend.
friend of Jesus. Here in John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. Don't overlook the profundity and the blessedness of that. The phenomenon of Facebook friends has watered down our concept of friendship. As has the colloquial expression so often used, even with complete strangers, my friend. We often think of friendship as being quite superficial, as in the case of Facebook. Or our suspicion is aroused when someone calls us their friend, as in someone a homeless person perhaps running after you on the street. Excuse me, my friend, my friend. We think, what does he want from me? Our, our term has been robbed of meaning by its modern usage. When we, when we say we're friends on Facebook or when we say, excuse me, my friend, to a stranger we never met. But true friendship is a wonderful thing. And true friendship with Christ is the most wonderful friendship of all. Among other things, Scripture tells us that friendship entails sharing one's life with another, using metaphors of walking together and speaking face to face. There is a knowing and being known. The Scripture tells us that friends help each other when they fall down. Friends can keep each other warm. Not so much in the sense that snuggling your bros is to be a normal and ordinary experience. But in the sense that two people battling hypothermia can utilize one another's body heat. I'm thinking of if one falls down, he has no one to pick him up. Right? But if a man has a friend, that one can help him up. And if two lie together, the scripture tells us they can keep warm. This is the sense of it. The scripture tells us that friends will look out for one another's interests and that a good friend will even lay down his life for his friends. Christian, Jesus, this passage tells us, is a friend to you. Jesus is looking out for you. Jesus is walking with you. Jesus speaks to you in His Word and wants you to know Him as He knows you. Jesus picks you up when you fall down. Jesus keeps you warm. Jesus laid down His life for you taking your sin upon Himself at the cross, bearing its penalty, wrapping His righteousness around you as a garment. I'm not a fan, generally, of the term best friend, as I find that it tends to lead only to misunderstanding and to jealousy and to hurt feelings and so forth. I'm not sure how helpful it is in ordinary parlance. We have lots of friends. We have lots of different types of friends. 
and they're all our friends. I'm not generally a big fan of designating who is our best friend. But surely we could meaningfully say, and, and, and in a healthy way, without falling into these pitfalls, surely we could acknowledge that Jesus really ought to be our best friend. Do you think of Jesus this way? If I were to ask you this morning, who is your best friend? Who would immediately come to mind? Jesus? If you said someone else and I said, not Jesus, would you be tempted to say something like, well, I mean of real people. Because here's a little newsflash. Jesus is a real person. Jesus is really our friend. He really ought to be our best friend. Does it have any ring of truth to talk about Jesus being your best friend? When you think about your lifestyle and your devotions, where you draw your sustenance from and who you confide in and whose advice you take, who you walk with, who you listen to, does it have any ring of truth? To say Jesus is my best friend? Or is that far removed from your Christian experience? Many of you know I love country music. And there's a song by a guy named Cody Johnson that goes like this They call him Emmanuel, the King of Kings. He's the Son of the Father, the Prince of Peace. They call him Hosanna, the Lighthouse at Sea, the Rock of Ages. And he's a friend to me. Is that a felt reality in your life that you can sing about? He's a friend to me. This is the first indicative we have in this passage that those who are vitally and organically connected to Jesus are his friends. An indicative tells us, an indicative being something that indicates what God has done rather than telling us what we must do. And indicative is a great word when used in telling us that we are friends of God because that is certainly something that God did and not something that we did. You see, and here's the second indicative in today's passage. Jesus' friends were chosen by Him. That is by His initiative. One commentator reminds us of the disciples' propensity to argue amongst themselves about who was the greatest. He suggests that Jesus, for that very reason, reminds his disciples here that they didn't choose him, but rather that they were chosen by him. Now, of course, at, at some point, each of the disciples did, in fact, choose to follow Jesus. <laughs> But Jesus is speaking of how it all started. And none of them in the first place chose Jesus prior to Jesus' choosing of them. The initiative behind the friendships that these men enjoyed with Jesus was all Jesus' initiative. As Abraham was a friend of God by grace, so these men were friends of God by grace. And so we, who are vitally and organically connected to Jesus here in the 21st century, are friends of God 
by grace. Doubtless, someone will be quick to point out at this juncture, yes, by grace, but through faith. These men chose. Abraham chose. We choose. Yes, all true. I know. All true. But behind our choosing, prior to our choosing, underneath our choosing, was God's choice of us. We sang just before the sermon, My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. Why? Why could that never be? Why not? Why could it never be that I would choose Christ? The song goes on, My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. Unless your grace had called me and taught my darkened mind, the world would have enthralled me. To your glories I'd be blind. Jesus himself taught us in John chapter 6 and verse 44 that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in John chapter 3 and verse 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see, let alone enter, the kingdom of God. Therefore, we know that unless the disciples had been born again, unless the Father who sent Jesus had drawn the disciples, they never could have chosen Christ. Unless the Father had drawn Abraham and given him the new birth, unless the Father had drawn you and given you the new birth, you never would have chosen Christ. Unless the Father had drawn and regenerated us, we would never be friends of God then. It's not something you did. Ultimately, it's something that God did. So is being a friend of God something to become self-righteous about? Something to be haughty about and gloat about over against the enemies of God out there who haven't made the same wise choice as us to choose Jesus. We are the friends of God. Is this the way that we ought to respond to being the friends of God? No. We have to remember we did not choose Christ. He chose us. Some will say, ah, but Jesus here is speaking to his apostles and of his choosing them for their office, their apostolic office. This is not a passage about election unto salvation and unto friendship with Christ Jesus. I would simply say, why do we take 14 of these 17 verses as being applicable to us? That we really ought to abide in Christ. That we really ought to obey Jesus' commands. That we really ought to bear much fruit. That we are friends of God. But this, like I said in my math wrong, 16 of 17 verses. But this one verse, we say, well, that's not applicable to us. Well, Jesus is here speaking to his apostles. No doubt, at least partially in view, is his appointment of them to their office. But we recognize that when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, 
here on the eve of his crucifixion, he's telling them about the nature of the spiritual life, which by extension then is applicable to us. They are friends of God, vitally and organically connected to the vine, not because they're wiser than anyone else, but because Jesus chose them by grace. They need to abide in Christ Jesus in order to bear much fruit. If they do not walk with Jesus, they will have no spiritual power and vitality and so forth. That if they want to have joy in the Christian life, they need to commune with Christ Jesus. Jesus is directly talking to the apostles here. We know that. But we've recognized and we've made the assumption over the last several weeks that this is applicable to us also. And so this passage of choosing. You are a Christian today in the 21st century. Not because you're better and smarter and wiser than your unbelieving friends and family members. You're not a friend of Jesus because you're better. You're not a friend of Jesus because you're wiser. You did not choose Jesus. He chose you. And so it's by grace that we've come to have this standing before God. It's by grace that we are called friends of God. It's by grace that we are friends of Jesus. Yes, we know we chose Him as the disciples chose Jesus. But Jesus is talking about the beginning. In the first place, it's of grace. We love because He first loved us, the Scripture tells us. We could co-opt that phrase and adjust it slightly and say we chose because He first chose us. This is the second indicative in this passage, John 15, 14 to 17, that we are friends of God is an immense blessing and privilege as a result of God's choosing of us before we ever chose Him. And at the beginning, I told you that by inference from verse 17, these indicatives were also surely given to us by Jesus to help motivate us to love one another. Just as the imperatives of this passage were given to help us love one another. So at this point, I would raise the question, how do these indicatives, these truths that we are friends of God and friends of God by God's choice, how do these indicatives help us love one another? Let's examine this lastly. How these truths ought to help us love one another. And the short answer is this. If someone is Jesus' friend, he can't be my enemy. If Jesus has chosen someone, I can't reject him. I've often quoted a seminary professor of mine. I know it was one of them, but I always forget which one it was. I don't know. It's lost in the annals of time. But one of my seminary professors said, and the quote stuck with me, even though the speaker didn't, I will not cut myself off from one to whom Christ has bound himself. This is the logic of this passage here. If John Doe is Jesus' friend, 
and I'm with Jesus, then John Doe needs to be my friend too. If Jesus has chosen John Doe, then I can't reject John Doe. But you don't understand. John Doe is so annoying. John Doe is obnoxious. No, no, no. no you don't get it. John Doe is so needy. John Doe is so talkative. John Doe is so shy. John Doe is so rude or insensitive or disengaged. Or John Doe is just a one-way street and he doesn't reciprocate. And I give and I give and John Doe never gives in return. You don't understand. I can't love John Doe. Well, never mind all that. John Doe is a friend of Jesus. Jesus has chosen John Doe. And if John Doe is Jesus' friend, and I'm with Jesus, then he has to be my friend too. If Jesus has chosen John Doe, then I can't reject John Doe. You understand? This is how this passage applies. Look, if you can love someone for their own sake, if you hear Jesus telling you in Scripture, love one another, and you say, well, I can't love this person, or I can't love that person, for any of the aforementioned reasons, shyness, rudeness, obnoxiousness, awkwardness, reservedness, lack of reciprocity, whatever, and you say to yourself, I can't love this person because they are so unlovable. If you can't love someone for their own sake, then by the logic of this passage, love them for Christ's sake. Because they are chosen by Christ. They are friends of Christ. And if you love Jesus, then love this person for Christ's sake. In the biblical book of Philemon, Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus, who was a servant or slave that had broken his contract and deserted Philemon, and then had become a Christian, whom Philemon had every right to struggle then to receive back warmly. Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes to Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. This would be something like receiving a WhatsApp message from a dear family member overseas. A friend of mine is coming to Barbados. He's quite difficult to deal with, but receive him as you would receive me. Think of someone you love. You know, if my father or my mother sent me a message like that, so-and-so is coming in, you don't know them, you never met them, you're going to have a hard time, but receive them like you would receive me. We might struggle with it at times, but we can understand the concept of loving one person for another person's sake. Consider your brothers and sisters in Christ, then, as what they are. Chosen friends of Christ Jesus. You see, not only does this passage tell you, Christian, that you are a chosen friend of Jesus, 
but it tells you that the difficult Christian sitting in front of you or beside you or behind you or in the next church in the gap, uh, you know, or the next town over or in another denomination or whatever. Look, all of these Christians are chosen friends of Christ. If you are, he is too. If you are, she is too. And if they are hard to love them for their own sake, then love them for Christ's sake, as his chosen friends. Receive them as you would receive Christ. If we can put a little spin on Paul's words. We would do as much for Paul the Apostle, no doubt. Am I right? If Onesimus was returning to Barbados from betraying us and deceiving us and mistreating us, and the Apostle Paul wrote, hey, he's coming back on the next JetBlue flight. Receive him as you would receive me. We'd be like, all right, Onesimus, bring it in. (laughs) Right? We would do that. And we would do that for a beloved family member who wrote to us about someone and said, receive them as you would receive me. Let us do as much for Christ Jesus himself then. Our best friend and our Savior who bids us to love one another. These things, that includes verses 14 to 16. These things Jesus has given us so that we might love one another. So take these indicatives and put them to work in loving one another.